everybody. Welcome to Dr. Drew Podcast. Uh, all the usual stuff. Please support those that support us. Uh, get at drdrew.com and uh, do uh, click on the banner. Click through the Amazon uh, banner there if you don't mind. Support the people that support us. We carefully select them, and uh, we can stand behind them, thankfully. Keeps wins in the sale of the Corolla Pirate Ship. Sign up at doctor.com for the uh, the contact list. You can send your questions into me on one of the various podcasts. We will get to it. And uh, also sign up for that. Uh, we have both a cancer series and the history of the opiate e- epidemic, uh, just called opium. But we tell you how exactly we got into this mess. So do check that out. And also, if you would mind heading over to my Instagram page, Dr. Drew Pinsky, uh, doing some some live pod, what do they call them? It's live TV kind of podcasts or broadcast there once in a while. And I want to get uh, more into that habit. Right now, I am really privileged to welcome our guest, Annie Duke. Annie, welcome to the program. Thank you for joining me. Hi, thanks for having me. So I'm, I'm dying to talk to you. I, I met okay. Annie. Uh, Annie sat next to me once at a co- poker tournament and just told me what to do, and so I did it. <laughs> and <laughs> and uh, ended up going all in and all quickly out. But uh, I, I recently played poker again, and I, I had a deeper understanding of what you have to do in certain situations. And I've heard you talking on, a, and I'll give you all your, I think everyone knows you now. You can find her at AnnieDuke.com. At Annie Duke is the uh, Twitter handle. She's a PhD in psychology from Penn, uh, English and psychology from Columbia. And she's had the total lifetime poker earnings of, am I right, for her, over $4 million? Yeah, that, well, in tournaments. In yeah, tournaments. That's right. Yeah. Um, and I heard you, you've been, you're making ads, I guess, for your book. The book is called Thinking in Bets, Make, Making Smarter Decisions When You Don't Have All the Answers. And I heard you talking on, I think, Paul, Rashly Speaking or one of those mm-hmm. podcasts about, I just thought I was fascinated by this and I was asked, Gary, to please get you in here. The idea of good decisions, bad outcomes mm-hmm. uh, and how common that is and how our brain is not set up to make that assessment properly. And it was it really it changed my thinking to hear the way you uh, described all that. Can you get into that for us? Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Thank you so much, by the way. That really means a lot to me. Um, so first of all, I just want to make clear, I did five years of my PhD program. I did my dissertation work, but I never defended. Whatever, so, whatever. Um, you had more important things to do in to- uh, poker tournaments. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like I started playing poker right at the end of my graduate school career, but I'm actually going back to finish. So. And you were cognitive linguistics. I want to ask you about that yeah. later, but because uh, that's, yeah. you know, is it persuasion you were talking about or, or just uh, what was the... No, I was actually studying first language acquisition. Oh, which interesting. actually brings us to why this connection between outcomes and decisions is so interesting. So when you're learning a first language, it's like a super noisy system. Yeah. People are saying all these sounds and there's you know, all these things that it could refer to, and you, you don't know if it's a thing or, a, like, a verb, like walk, or a thing like ball, or it could be, like, a state of mind, yeah. like think. That one's really hard. So I was actually studying how you connect up how a, a child, you know, in the space of a year figures out how to connect up the words uh, to their meanings, which is actually a super hard problem to solve. Oh, my God. I I know the the first thing is pointing, right? So they sort of point, you know, it's sort of reference, right? Isn't that their Ah, first Ah, That's what my dissertation work was on, that pointing is actually bad. It doesn't really help you very much. Because when you're pointing, if you think about it, it could be the finger, it could be the thing you're pointing at, it could be the act of pointing. Well, also, I I always stop pointing when I see how kids point, they're always... They're always it's a it's a substitute for language, you know what I mean? It's like they yeah. they don't have it yet, so they're trying with the pointing. It's some sort of active sort of meaning, but it's not language. Yeah, so that when the child does it, they're pointing at something they want, and it's often you notice very hard for the parent to interpret. Oh and yeah. So now imagine a child who doesn't have the language. It, it actually turns out that it gets narrowed down much more by grammar. By oh, the, the child has access to the structure of the language, so. Huh. They know if the, la- if the word th- that they don't know is a verb or a noun, um, so they get some clues that way that help them narrow down what the set is so they can sort of start figuring it out. But and that's actually that's what my dissertation work was on, which was a little bit – we just went off topic. Well, but, but I, and I'm imagining – I don't know. Again, I'm, I'm fascinated by all this stuff, but the, the, the neurobiology and wiring that's going on during all that process has got to be spectacularly complex. Is that some of what you were studying? Yeah, so um, it turns out that we're all born with basically a language machine. And uh, the way that you can kind of think about it is it has settings. 
And so you come in with this language machine and you're born to parents who speak a certain language, but there's a constrained, uh, there's constraints to like what a language could be. Right. So like as an example, um, some languages, the order of the words tell you whether it's a verb or a noun. That would be in language like English, that the subject comes before the verb and then the object comes after the verb. Um, and then there's other languages uh, which have a much freer word order, but there's these sort of sound markings hmm. on that tell you whether it's a subject or a verb. So, um, so that's like one setting. Is it word order or is, is the position marked, right? So yep. that would be like a setting. So um, so basically, the, the child is in the language, and it's just, you've got this language machine, and it's just sort of flicking off what the settings are. Hmm. So it just, it, you're sort of identifying what the these different parameters are for the language that you're in, as you're kind of learning And it. yet we can't do that as adults. No, because of neuroplasticity. Yeah, so we don't have um, depending, depending on how similar the language is to the one that you speak, um, it's going to get pretty shut down between about age 7 and 14. Ugh. And it, it just kind of depends so frustrating. Um, what the range is. The farther afield it is from the language that you were born into, the earlier. I will never speak Chinese. It's official. No, you will never speak Chinese, <laughs> but you have a chance at, you know, uh, something like German, for example. Oh, no. <laughs> no. I, I've, been, I've got French, and I, 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 I'm just frustrated with that, so it's enough. Yeah. Well, I, I, you'd probably be pretty good at British. <laughs> yes, I would be at that. Thank you. Yes. So, you know, we know, and we know that there's, you know, the brain's only plastic for a certain amount of time. But when, they, when children are really young, it's very plastic. You know, they know that if you uh, have a child who has a, a, a hemispherectomy, right, they have to take out a whole hemisphere of the yeah. brain, generally because of epilepsy. Um, if you do it early enough, they actually don't really show a lot of deficits. That's how plastic the brain is. Right, it's crazy. And I, I, yeah. when we were in medical school, they always showed us pictures of severe hydrocephalus, which is tiny rim of brain, and a normally functioning IQ child. Right, right, Craziness. exactly. So, you know, but the, obviously when those things happen to adults, it's over. So, yeah. um, kind of same thing with language in terms of the window. Of hey, well, good times. Yeah. So, <laughs> so let's go back to decision making. Something adults do have capacity for, and yes, uh, how we yes. assess those decisions. Because this is this is great insights. Yeah. So, um, so the basic problem is this: that um, it, if there's no uncertainty, um, and uncertainty would derive from two places. One would be luck. So, if you think about playing poker, when we play, I don't have control over the cards that are going to come. So that would be a luck element. Um, and then there's also hidden information. So there's just stuff that we don't know or can't know. So in poker, that would be, for example, that the cards are face down. So when you're in that kind of situation where there's a lot of uncertainty, you get um, only a very loose relationship between the way that something turns out and the decisions that, that lead to the way it turns out. So I think that you can see this actually pretty clearly if we think about the difference between chess and poker. So in a game like chess, there's very little luck, certainly not in the sense that someone might roll a seven and take your bishop off the board. Mm-hmm. Um, the pieces are going to stay where they are until someone purposely moves them, and, and so that's you know reducing drastically the luck element. And then also, there isn't this problem of information asymmetry, that you know something about your cards that I don't know, and I know something about my cards that you don't know. In chess, we can both perfectly see each other's positions. It is so, one thing you, I didn't hear you talk about. There were there were two other things I hope we'll get into a little bit. Should we be when we make decisions in life trying to control as many variables as we can, or is that a fool's errand? And then number two, our brains don't assess probabilities very well. No. At least we're not trained to do that. And and what do we do with that piece? So those are two things I'm interested in. Yeah, so we can definitely get into that, actually. that Those are the kinds of things that I really love to talk about. So yeah. I'm going to be excited about that. Okay. So, um, so here's the thing. If you, if you think about chess, um, if I lose a game of chess to you, um, because we've taken all the uncertainty out of it, so I have a bad quality outcome, I lose a game to you, um, we can actually know what my decision quality was in comparison to yours. We know whether I made good decisions in comparison to your decisions. If I lost to you... I made bad decisions. So there's this really good correlation between whether something turns out well or not um, and whether the decisions that led to it are are good or not. In chess. Yeah, in chess. But if you take a game like poker, that's not true. 
So because there's this all this uncertainty. So I can have the very best hand, like a hand like aces, um, against you. I can play the hand just right. And because of the turn of a card that I don't have any control over, I can lose the hand. Well, this is what happened to me when I was sitting next to you is I had I had a full house and the only thing – and there was a guy betting against me and, and I went – you said go all in, which is what I had to do. And the maybe the guy – was the guy at the other table went all in before me or something. And, and I thought, well, he's got to have – for some reason I knew it was four nines. And I, that's the only thing that could he could be doing yeah. it because it was sort of evident that I had a full house. And I thought that's got to be it, but he doesn't really know that I have a full house, and maybe he's got something else. And so I had to go all in. That was the right move, right? Yes. Yeah, but it, I lost. Yeah. Yeah. So exactly. <laughs> so so that's that's a really interesting thing about poker. And if you think about it, even most of the simplest decisions in life actually act more like poker than chess. For sure. So um, so for example, I can follow all the rules of the road. I can run through a green light and. I can still get in an accident, even though I made perfectly good decisions on the way through the green light. And likewise, you know, I can, hopefully I don't ever do this, but I, I could drive drunk, run through a red light, and still get home safely, mm-hmm. right, even though all of those things are bad decisions. Right. Um, so the problem is for us that what we're always trying to do is kind of work backwards from the way that something turned out to try to figure out if our decisions were good or not. Um, and we engage in something that's called resulting, which is you look at the, whether the decision was good or bad. I mean, what, excuse me, you look at whether the outcome was good or bad, and then you use that as if you're playing chess as a perfect signal for whether the decisions were good or not. And obviously, that's a really bad idea in anything that's not chess, and almost nothing that we do in life is chess. So, I, I heard but, you use the example of the uh, Seahawks in the Super Bowl. Yeah, exactly. So that's like the perfect example. So uh, in the 2015 Super Bowl, Super Bowl 49, Pete Carroll, at the very end of the game with 26 seconds left, second down, he's got one timeout, um, he's down by four against the Patriots. And everybody's expecting him to hand the ball off to Marshawn Lynch, amazing running back. <laughs> they all just think, okay, he's going to hand the ball off to him. Marshawn Lynch is going to try to barrel through the – defensive line and you know we'll see if he can score and, and of course down by four the, the coach knows and the coach knows the defense is going to be keying into that as the highest probability move right and actually um there's a great book called Grid, gridiron genius that's coming out by mike lombardi it's it's coming out actually next month um where he actually talks about the coverage i don't actually talk about the coverage in my book but he talks about the coverage and that the coverage is actually a run coverage exactly to your point yeah um, so Pete Carroll decides to call a pass play. He has Russell Wilson pass the ball. Um, pretty famously, Malcolm Butler intercepts the ball in the end zone, and the game is over. And you, can, you actually can go on YouTube and you can listen to this. Chris Collingsworth is just basically calling Pete Carroll an idiot yes. on the television and yeah. just saying, like, he can't believe that he made this stupid decision. And the next day, when you look at the headlines... There seems to be an argument in the papers about whether it's the worst call in Super Bowl history or the worst call in NFL history, <laughs> period. <laughs> so, um, you know, I think it's kind of interesting there because it's like it's Pete Carroll. Like, what are the chances that he's actually made the worst call in the history of the game? He's one of the greatest coaches ever. But that aside, what we do know is for sure happening is that people are looking at the quality of that outcome, which, to be fair, is totally disastrous. And they're saying, aha, I can use that to work backwards to figure out whether his call was good, whether the decision was good. And since the quality of the outcome was so bad, the decision must be terrible too. So, here, so let's just do a really quick thought experiment because this sort of helps us see what the problem is. So imagine that Pete Carroll calls that pass play and the ball is caught for a touchdown in the end zone. What do you think that the headlines look like the next Best day? call of all time. Best call greatest, of all time. Exactly. Greatest call ever. Genius. Greatest call Genius, ever. yeah. Yeah, and everybody can feel this. And you know that whether the ball's caught or not has nothing to do with the decision. Once Pete Carroll makes that call, everything else is out of his hands. It's like somebody just hits a good card in poker. Um, and I'll, like, here's a really interesting fact about that. I'll, I'll give you two facts. Fact number one, we know that that's the people, way people react because there was the Philly special this year in the Super Bowl where Doug Peterson for the Eagles 
did a very strange play against the Patriots where instead of going for a field goal on fourth and one to end the second quarter, which is what everybody expected, instead he called a pass play. Nick Foles caught the ball in the end zone. And Chris Collingsworth, same guy, is talking <laughs> about what a genius Doug Peterson is. So we, we, already, we can actually see it. We don't need to do the thought experiment. Here's the other interesting fact. The chances of an interception, if you're super conservative in your estimate, you make like the, the highest percentage that you can come up with given the data. And I, I, I actually think this is probably too high, but I'm going to give you the highest number, is 2%. That's a chance that the ball gets intercepted there. Like, so once you know that, and you know that 98% of the time that's going to work out just fine, it seems a little absurd to say that's the worst call in Super Bowl history. And, and I think these particular pass and pass receivers, the quarterback and pass receivers, had even a, a better track record, didn't they? They had like no interceptions or something? Or, they had or no higher, interceptions and, in that season. And higher levels Correct. of completions than average. And so all the data stacked up in their, in, in their favor. Not only that, but I think, don't quote me on this, but I'm pretty sure that in that situation, in that season, Marshawn Lynch had actually only scored two times out of ten. In, in, within five-yard line or something. Yeah, within uh, the five-yard line, which, yeah. of course, people don't really look at. Here's the other really interesting thing, just for the football geeks out there. Um, because he only has one timeout, if he hands it off to Marshawn Lynch, the clock is going to run. And run out. And run out. So yeah. he's going to have to call the timeout, which is only going to give him enough time for one more play. Right. When he passes and it's incomplete, the clock stops actually super fast. Interesting. Which means he's still going to get the two plays anyway. So you're getting three plays instead of two by starting with the pass play, hey. which is just a, I mean, I really encourage people to go look at 538. Um, Benjamin Morris had some really amazing analysis of this. And once you do that, it's like, okay you might still come to the conclusion that maybe you would have preferred a run play. But we certainly get off of it's the worst call in Super Bowl history. And I think this is such a good example of resulting of this idea that, well, I know the quality of the outcome, disaster. So therefore, that means that I know the quality of the decision, disaster. Because actually, these things are really disconnected, and it takes time for the quality of the decision to reveal itself. And certainly one single pass isn't enough to be able to see clearly into the decision quality after the fact. I want to welcome through Niagen, of course. These are guys that produce a dietary supplement designed to boost a key cellular resource called NAD, or nicotinamide adenine dinucleotide. A lot of research being done on NAD these days, and the clinical science is preliminary but looks very interesting. What's exciting is these research studies suggest that increased NAD may help with cellular metabolism, regulating circadian rhythms, even hopeful they may slow the effects of aging. There's some data that suggests that. They are very early. The science is impressive, and the biohacking community has really gotten behind this. I've been intrigued by the possibilities surrounding NAD and the research behind True Niagen. I suggest you check it out for yourself at their website. Also, back in June, I had a chance to speak with the company's chief scientific advisor, Dr. Charles Brenner. On my podcast, it was a fascinating discussion. It really piqued my interest of all the possible applications for this product. Definitely check that episode out. And to learn more about the research, the science, and the True Niagen supplements, check out drdrew.com slash true niagen, T-R-U-N-I-A-G-E-N, drdrew.com slash true niagen. Well, of course, I've been talking about TheraWorks Relief for ugh, over a year now, and muscle cramps can just knock you out of sleep, right? We've all had these things, but some people are just tormented by them. In the past, I've had to use medication to control them for my patients, but now TheraWorks Relief is a non-greasy foam. It's clinically proven to relieve these muscle cramps fast. It also will prevent them with daily use. It's TheraWorks Relief, prevents muscle cramps before they start, allows you to get a full night of sleep or, or do the activities you want. Some people cannot exercise without triggering cramps, but not with TheraWorks Relief. only takes minutes to apply. It's non-greasy, absorbs quickly, it works, and people love it. I recommend it to my family, friends, patients. And they are very enthusiastic about it, I have to say. They, they then refer to their friends and family. Therox Relief is my choice for preventing and relieving muscle cramps. Make it yours, too. Get Therox Relief in the pain relief aisle at Walmart, CVS, Rite Aid, and Walgreens, or by talking to your pharmacist. Learn more at TheraWorksRelief.com. That is Theraworks Relief for your muscle cramps. If you like my show, you're going to love John Taffer, No Excuses, on Podcast One. Best-selling author, entrepreneur behind Bar Rescue, is not taking anyone's nonsense 
and he is telling it like it is. This week, he's joined by actress Jenny McCarthy. Check out John Taffer, No Excuses, every Tuesday on Podcast One or wherever you get your favorite podcast. Pluto TV, the leading free streaming television service. I love these guys. I tell everyone, while I'm telling you about it, just go to your app store and download Pluto TV. You will be stunned. 100 TV channels, thousands of movies on demand, completely free. They don't ask for a credit card. They don't even, you don't have to sign up. They just, you just download the app and boom, you're in. It's easy, completely legal way to watch your favorite television shows and hit movies for free. Why would you wait? Never pay for TV again by downloading Pluto TV. You can download Pluto you can download Pluto TV for free on all your favorite devices today, including your phone, Roku, Amazon Fire TV, Apple TV, Smart TVs, PlayStations, anywhere else you stream. Pluto TV is the leading free streaming television service. Watch over 100 channels, thousands of movies for free. Do it now. What are you waiting for? Is there anything about probabilities that our brain is missing in that assessment? You know, with the two percent, uh, you know, probability of a interception. Is there? Is there? Are there any other? You know, sometimes in probability there are weird phenomenon. I guess I would call it. You know, where it's two percent, except in certain year or something. They're just you know, if the, if you throw it a hundred times though, and they they've thrown hundred without the you know without getting interception, you could interpret it as whatever. Are, are there anything like that that we're missing? Not in this particular analysis. I, I think generally the problem is that we're not really good at aggregating. Right. So and, and is like it we even don't appro- really understand what 2% percent and, and is it means. is it even appropriate to aggregate because each of these situations are so different? Well, it, yeah, I mean, that's what I'm saying, that, the, that you, your, your worst estimate is 2%. That's if you aggregate across 15 years. But yeah, I mean, the answer is it's appropriate to aggregate, but you have to aggregate with kind of an asterisk by it. Right, right. Because you understand that those, you know, in aggregating, you know that you're pooling together some situations that have differences. Yes. But you're trying to to get the most kind of like things together to get an estimate. Because, you know, the thing that that I, I always try to get across is that it's better to get a bad estimate than no estimate at all. Okay. I mean, in the sense that I can tell you that the interception rate there is going to be somewhere between just above 0% and 2%. So I can't tell you exactly where it is in there, but I've got it at least in a range, and I'd rather have a range than nothing at all. And and then I think the next place to go is you know where we talk about, we tell people, we don't tell people the outcomes, but tell them our decisions, or or, or you tell them, the wrong, you know, different outcome than we actually had, or both outcomes, I guess, was your argument. Yeah. So I think one of so here's here's the really kind of big problem for us um, is that we don't understand probabilities very much, and we know that once we know the outcome, our ability to actually think clearly about uh, the decision quality it just becomes really hard. It casts this really big cognitive shadow over things. So, like an example would be. In the 2016 election, um, if you looked at what was on 538 with Nate Silver, as you were kind of leading into that last week um, between Trump and Clinton, Nate Silver had Trump about 35% to win. So 35% is a lot. Mm. But once you actually get the outcome of Trump winning, it feels like that was the only thing that could have happened. And so people looked back and said, well, Nate Silver was wrong. Oh, wow. Even though, like, he, he didn't say... Clinton was going to win. He said Clinton was going to win sixty five percent of the time. Hmm. So, well, th- that that we, but that that way of framing probability, people their brains already go uh, right, you, right you know exactly. I mean? So then yeah. they just take they take the outcome and then they just try to create certainty out of that. Yeah. So once we kind of understand that there there's this problem that if we know the outcome, we lose our ability to think about the future as a lot of different possibilities. So beforehand, when you're saying, well, either Clinton could win or Trump could win, and it's going to be some percentage of time that Clinton will win and some percentage of the time that Trump will win, people are totally fine with that before the fact. Yeah. They get it. They're like, okay, there's two branches of this tree. Yeah. They're totally fine. But once you have the outcome, that ability goes away, and you, it, just, it just seems so inevitable what's happened. Any idea so, why we've evolved with that? Well, because we're much better off making an error that's a false positive Mm. than a false negative, Mm -hmm. evolutionarily speaking. So what we want to do is just live to fight another day 
as we're evolving as a species. So if you think about um, I'm on a savanna and I hear rustling in the leaves, it's better for me to falsely think that's a lion and run away than to falsely think it's not a lion and stay. So So, overestimating risk, is that what we're doing? Well, what we're doing is we're connecting, we're, we're more likely to take signal, we're more likely to think something is a signal than something is noise, mm. right? So we know that when there's rustling in the, in the grasses on the savanna that that's noisy. Sometimes it's going to be a lion and sometimes it's just going to be the wind. Mm. So as you're trying to figure out, as you're trying to pull signal out of that, we just have a bias we're, we're, from an evolutionary standpoint. Um, evolution selected for people have a bias to think that's a signal. Which makes sense. Yeah. And then there, there's all sorts of stuff about recognizing patterns um, that we sort of evolved to kind of over-recognize patterns. Um, so there's just a lot of advantages when, when, when you're trying to have a species survive um, to sort of too much certainty, right? Like false positives, overconfidence, um, seeing patterns where they don't exist. Uh, this is part of the reason why people really fall for conspiracy theories, for example. Um, so we know that we have this problem, and we know that once we have outcomes that we're really, really bad at decision quality. So one of the best things you can do in order to kind of get out from the shadow of an outcome is kind of do what I just did with you with the Pete Carroll thing. Yeah. So I could go to three groups of people, right? And that one group of people I could say, well, it was the Super Bowl. There was this really big decision. He called for a pass play and the pass was caught. What do you think about it? Yeah. And I kind of get an answer from them. And then I could go to another group of people, describe the same situation, and say, so the ball was intercepted. What do you think about that? I could get the answer from them. And then it's really good to have a third group of people where I describe the exact same situation, and I say, what do you think about it? And I don't tell them the outcome. How, how is their assessing abilities then? Is it good? It's, it's actually much better than the groups where you actually tell them what happened. Yeah. The reason why I like to take the groups where you tell them what happened is that the people who hear it as a negative outcome will tend to pull out some of the more um, negative things about the decision-making, and that's useful to hear. And the people who hear the positive are going to be pulling out all the positive stuff, so now you can kind of look at those two things and you know, they're going to see some things that the other group won't. Can, can you give um, me the positive g- people will see some things can, that the negative people won't. And then the people who don't know the outcome uh, will give you certain information. And you kind of start to look across it so that you can see sort of what the pieces of the decision are. Can, can, you, um, can you give us an example of the kind of decision-making, say, in life that this would be a good, a useful tool for? I mean, in a game setting, so to speak, it, it sort of makes sense. And a lot of life is game theory, but where would you where would you most apply this? Do you think? Well, so I mean, I it's a silly answer, but kind of everywhere. <laughs> well, so, I, I would, well, I would think like career choices or yeah, investments, choices, investments, right? Things like that, right? Definitely yeah. investments, particularly because as we look at our like when we're investing and you look at your portfolio, you're getting results every single day, right? Like yeah. the stock is ticking up or down every single day. Um, as you're trying to analyze your own decisions in your own career, like you're a salesperson, you close a sale, you don't. You're trying to figure out, was my strategy good? What was due to luck? Would I have been able to close that sale higher for, more, for a higher amount than I actually did? Um, did I do an extra good job to close it for what I did and actually most people would have closed it lower? It's hard to say. And it's hard to say particularly after you've actually closed the sale. Right? So... Um, in most career decisions, when you're doing any kind of strategic planning, when you're trying to assess the results that you have, when you're trying to figure out if you're doing a good job raising your children, yeah, you know, don't tell them, don't tell people how it's turning out as you're talking about your decisions. Here's a really simple one. So, when I'm trying to discuss something that I've read, let's say it's a political opinion piece or something I've read in a scientific journal or. Um, whatever it might be. When I'm talking to you, like if I were talking to you about an article that I read, I would try to be really careful not to offer you my opinion. Right. Because if I do that, I'm essentially telling you what 
the outcome is. I'm telling you what my own conclusion is. Right. And now I might as well not have asked you the question in the first place. And it's really interesting because it's really hard. So I think, like, if you think about it, when you're saying, oh, I read this really interesting opinion piece in Whoops. the Washington Post. Already you're biasing. Right. Yeah. Here, here's, what, here's what it said. I thought it was really good. Yeah. I'd love for you to read it and tell me what you think. What's going to happen, do you think, to the opinion that you're going to give me back? Yeah. So if instead I say, I just send you the article and I say, hey, would love to get your thoughts on this. And that's all I say, and I don't tell you anything about what I think about it. Now I'm going to get a much better opinion from you. But people don't do that. Like, when was the last time somebody told you about something they read where they didn't tell you their opinion on oh, it before they asked for yours? Jesus, these days they bring it up only to tell you their opinion. Exactly. Yeah. But what there's a lot of talk these days about luck, luck, luck. People are you know successful because of luck. But to what extent is luck actually a piece of the story? I mean, it's certainly some. But how, how do we assess luck? Yeah. So I think that you know part of what people are trying to get at when they talk about luck is that first of all, there there is a lot of luck in the system, um, and you can think about luck in a variety of different ways because. When someone's successful, if you say that they had a lot of luck involved, that, that's not to take away the fact that they did a lot with the luck that they had. Right. So, and I think that this is why people are, are kind of averse to this idea of people saying, hey, you know, there was a lot of luck in the way that your life turned out. Um, because I think that they think it's taking away from their skill elements. But we know that there's a lot of luck in the way that your life turned out. I mean, I'll start with mine for a second. I was born in America. Both my parents had graduate level degrees. I, um, you know, I was born at a certain time when during my lifetime I got to hold a computer in my hand. I had indoor plumbing. I had vaccines so that my risk of death from an early childhood disease was much lower than it used to be. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, and I can go on and on. And obviously the circumstances of my birth are completely a matter of luck. So my life, if I had been born in the 1700s, would have been very different. I certainly wouldn't have been allowed to have the career that I had. I mean, I wouldn't have been allowed to own property. Mm -hmm. We can start there, You would have been property. Yeah, I would have been property, exactly. So we know that there's a lot of luck involved. And I think that what we tend to miss, and this goes back to resulting, is that when we start to assign too much skill to somebody's outcomes, when we start to think, well, that was 100% skill, what we miss is that there's lots and lots of people who were just as skillful who did not have the same outcome, mainly due to luck. And there are lots of people, though, with the same luck that also didn't have the same outcome. Oh, for sure. And that, that's where you have to get into this balance of what the skill and luck are. Yeah. So, I mean, as an example, it, if you have 100 people who have a startup, we know that most startups fail. We know that 80% of them fail. Now, some percentage of those is going to, are going to fail because the entrepreneurs aren't particularly good. Right. Some percentage of the ones that succeed are going to succeed because the entrepreneurs are particularly good. But we also know that some percentage of the ones that fail, the entrepreneurs are actually quite brilliant. And due to matters that are relatively under their, out of their control, just the volatility of startups in the first place, um, they happen to fail. And we know that some percentage of the people who do succeed are actually not as skillful as some of the ones who don't succeed. Right. But that's not to say that the people who have successful startups that you're supposed to say, well, they just got lucky. Right? Of course they were skillful. Gosh, this, this, we this, don't want to make the we don't want to make the mistake of thinking that they have the secret sauce, number this, one, and you're supposed to try to replicate exactly what they do. It's probably a mix. And you don't want to reject the eighty percent of people that failed and say, Well, they must be have been really bad. Th- this last season of Silicon Valley really explored all that stuff. Yes. They really yes. did. And, and I love that show, by but, the way. But it, yeah, me too. Well, particularly this last season, I, I was just taken yeah. with it. But 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 it brings up the, the, another issue that uh, that's going on in that series, which is sort of trying to control variables or trying to mm-hmm. do something with variables that are out of your control. This, uh, what do we do with that piece? And you mentioned investing. I was thinking to myself, well, time arbitrage is something you can control in investing. That, uh, you, that you, you tell me. Yeah. So I think that what we want to think about is kind of two pieces, right? We want to think there are certain things that are definitely going to be out of our control that we can't do anything about. 
Our job there is to anticipate the set of outcomes that those things might cause to happen so that we have a plan in place. I think that one of the issues is that we think we have too much control over the future, and so we're actually not as prepared as we should be for the downside. It's interesting. I always told my residents, I said, look, make your decisions. I'll stand behind them, but I'll kill you if you don't have a plan for should those be the wrong decisions. Always have a backup plan because if you don't have a plan, if things go wrong, you're going to get in big trouble with a patient. Right, and that's the difference between being reactive and being nimble. Right? We don't want to be just reacting to the way that things are turning out. We want to have a plan in place in advance so that we're nimble, so that we can sort of shift around and we've got a plan in place and we sort of anticipated, we've anticipated that that outcome might occur. We've got some sort of estimate that's reasonable of the probability that that, that bad outcome might occur, some set of bad outcomes might occur due to things that we don't really have a lot of control over, just we made the best decision and we know yeah. that sometimes when we go through the green light, we get an accident. Or you made a bad decision. But it, it was or, still, or right. Yes, it's okay too, okay. but no backup, exactly. real, real trouble. Right. So where we do have a lot of control is, and this is where, like I have this pet peeve where people say, don't you think you make your own luck? And I'm like, impossible. <laughs> That's the <laughs> definition of luck. Yeah. You can't make it. Yeah. Um, something is totally out of your control. But what you do do is make your own decisions. And the decisions that you make, if they're actually executed well, this is where the beauty is that you reduce the probability of the bad outcomes occurring. Yes. So you do have, when you make a decision, you can actually change the probability of different sets of futures. I mean, that's kind of what the definition of, of deciding is. You have choice A or choice B, and choice A has some set of possible futures that will result from it, and that set of possible futures have certain probabilities associated with them. Mm-hmm. And choice B has maybe the exact same set of possible futures, but the probabilities are different. Maybe it has a different set of po- possible futures, um, but they're different. And that's, that's the control that you have. That's what you make. You don't make your own luck. You make your own decisions that actually changes the probability of different outcomes occurring. And I think that once you really understand that, um, you get much less into this idea of like, you know, I should have known. Why didn't I see that coming? Um, well, I couldn't have done anything about it anyway. Um, I, I never saw that coming, and now I don't have a plan. I'll, you know, and you don't sort of get into this sort of shrugging of, well, it doesn't really matter what I do anyway, so I'm just not even going to try. Oof, that's bad. Why try yeah. is bad. Yeah. If you're looking for a car, you're probably familiar with terms like MSRP or dealer price, list price. I, I don't know about you, but I have no idea what all this stuff means. And I believe it's there just to confuse all of us. What you really want is the true price, the actual price. And now you have something that is meaningful. It is true price from true car. You can know exactly what you'll pay for the car you want, including fees and accessories, before you ever get to the dealership. True Car Dealers will show you the true price on cars like the one you want. And it's all from the comfort of your own home or wherever you are. You can see that true price, and you know the true price is a great price because, A, True Car shows you what other people paid for the same car you want. And, B, True Car certified dealers know this, so they set their true price competitively so they will win your business. So remember, when you're ready to buy new or used, don't forget, used cars as well at True Car. Same true price, new or used, true car. Enjoy a more confident car buying experience. Some features not available in all states. Well, Hydrolyte, you know, is my favorite rehydration product, whether it is because of just laying out in the heat during the summer, but it's the end of summer now, so maybe it's during exercise or maybe you're getting out there and running a little more. It is a stunning product. It's the proper way to stay hydrated. You need the proper balance of sodium, glucose, and water. And Hydrolyte simply does this better than anybody, better than sports drinks. And it's better than water alone. You need not just water. You need solute. Again, sodium, glucose, water. Hydrolyte is the best oral rehydration product I've ever seen. And it comes, it, part, of the, the, part of the magic of Hydrolyte is all the different flavors, orange berry and lemonade, and how it's presented. It's in a premixed drink, a powder, or these little effervescent tablets you can carry with you and just drop into a glass bottle of water. And you have an optimal rehydration product right there that you carry with you. Compared to sports drinks, Hydrolyte delivers up to four times the electrolytes with 75% less sugar. The solutions are appropriate for all ages. It's a bottle or a package. It's easy to follow instructions. You can find Hydrolyte at Rite Aid or Hydrolyte.com slash Dr. Drew. And for a limited time for our listeners, you can save 30% on Hydrolyte. Just click the banner on my website at drdrew.com. 
Use the code DRDRW18 at checkout. That is either hydrolite.com slash Dr. True and then use the Dr. Drew18 code or just go to my website and click through on the banner. And again, the checkout code is Dr. Drew18. You'll save 30% on a great product. And uh, I noticed that in my research I have on you, there's something called the kudos system. Is that part mm-hmm. of all? Is that is something different than this or is that this we're talking about? So, yeah. So I think that this, what, what goes into this is, so for people who aren't familiar, so kudos is an acronym um, that was uh, a, a guy named Robert Merton um, came up with it. And Robert Merton is a, one of the original social psychologists. And he was really trying to get across, like, we these are what you need in order to instantiate really good scientific endeavor in um, the, a group. So kudos stands for C is communism, which means that you have to share the details. So if we think about if I'm trying to get help with a decision and I go to you and I say, hey, Drew, I want you to help me with this decision. I need to share the details of the decision with you. Right. If I leave certain things out, which we tend to do, we particularly leave things out that um, don't argue for the position that we'd really like to come to. Right. If I'm saying, like, I'm trying to decide between A and B, I, I'll have a tendency to leave the details out if I prefer A that would support B. Got it. Right? Yep. So, so kudos. Com- so complete communalism. Right. So, so obviously communism not in the sense of the political sense, but in the sense of if we're going to have a decision-making community together, a scientific one or, or personal, right, we could form a personal decision-making community, yeah. then I need to be sharing the details with you. And you, if you're engaging in this very well, will ask me questions like, is there anything that left out, that you left out that might argue against your case? Right. Is there anything that you didn't say because it made you uncomfortable or you felt like it put you in an unflattering light? So you're going to help me along in identifying the things that I'm supposed to be sharing with you. So that's the C. Um, the U is universalism. And you can think about it as the flip side of don't shoot the messenger. This would be don't shoot the message. So the idea is outside, assuming that two people are of equal expertise, um, whether you like the messenger or not does not mean that their message is true or false. Right. So the idea would be it doesn't really matter whether it's uh, my best friend or my worst enemy telling me that the earth is round. The earth is round nonetheless. I get it. Right. So we don't want to look at messages and say, um, for example, this one's coming from a political party that I prefer, so therefore I believe it, or this one's coming from the political party that I don't like, and so therefore I disbelieve it. This is almost right? you should impossible. should be evaluating the information independently. And this is, particularly for people that aren't trained to do this, almost impossible for them to do. Right, exactly. So yeah. one of the great things, you can sort of apply this idea of outcome blindness to this, is that I can go ask you about this thing that I read and not tell you that it came from a Democrat or a Republican. Right. I mean, scientists are trained to, to I, I whenever I hear about this and sort of cognitive uh, dissonance and stuff, I I always think, oh, I don't really do that. But I thought, oh, I'm, I'm really trained not to do that. I mean, I'm a scientist. Right. You know, you were carefully trained to evaluate just objectively. Just look at the facts, ma'am. Yeah, and you, you actually see this in the political discourse now, people sort of trying to get people to think in a universal way. Huh. They always do it to argue for their own side. Right. But you'll see if people don't like something that Trump said, they'll, um, if they don't like something that Trump did and they're trying to get a Republican to not like it as well, they'll say, imagine if Obama did it. Yeah, yeah. If, and likewise, the reverse. If, if they're trying to get you to like something that Trump did, they'll say, imagine if Obama did it. Right. So it, it kind of works both ways. And you can see that people are really bad at it because so they sort of dismiss that. But the fact is that uh, there is an objective truth, and it is independent of the person who says it. Yep. Um, so that's the U piece. Um, and then the D piece is um, disinterestedness, so it's kudos, C-U-D, um, is disinterestedness. So this gets into a lot of this kind of um, the problem with outcome blindness and me offering my opinion to you. Got it. So we think about conflicts of interest in general as financial conflicts of interest, but we have this really built-in conflict of interest is that we want our beliefs to be right. 
and See, we want oh, the now, world to make sense. Now you said something that I have used since I heard you say it on this on this issue. And and I've brought it up a number of times with people and I want to thank you for it and I will give you attribution for it. But as a scientist, it's more important to be accurate than to be right. And I thought yeah. to myself, when I heard you say that, I thought, oh, well, that's why I'm not bothered by all these these uh, cognitive dissonant things because because I I don't care about being right. I care about being accurate, about being and being not just accurate, but also proper application of my scientific training <laughs> and accurate. You know right. what I mean? Which are two different things. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. one is I doing my my process properly, and I'm trying to be accurate. And if I'm right or wrong, that's I'm probably going to be wrong a lot of the time. Most of the time, I'm a scientist. You're always wrong. Somebody's going to disprove you. Doesn't matter. But that's right. training. And as a scientist, if you knew that somebody had information that disproved your hypothesis and that they didn't tell you it, you would consider that to be of great harm to you. On the other hand, if they have information that will disprove my theory or hypothesis, I'm grateful. Thank you. Right. Thank you. You're expanding. You. You're, well, now right. yeah, but you're expanding my sense of reality. It's I'm, I'm getting closer to the truth. Exactly. So, and this is actually a really big problem because most of us actually interact with the world in a way that we want to be right. Meaning that when people disagree with us, it it hurts our feelings. And people kind of know this. So when they have information that disagrees with us, if they're our friends, they generally won't Uh, offer it up. It's the worst. Um, And trying to change your thinking to say, no, wait, you don't understand. If you have information that disagrees with me and you don't speak up, you're harming me. Annie, I'm actually running out of time. I've got five more minutes with you. So let's finish up. Kudos. Disinterestedness, conflict of interest. We all want to be right. So if I communicate, I don't want to be right. Where I'm asking you, I don't want to be right. What my belief but, is, but I don't want to be right. I, I when people say that, I'm just like, mm, I'm not interested in being right. I'm interested in being accurate. I think that's right. right. So this yeah. is it, exactly. So this is how we get there. If when I communicate you, I don't tell you what my beliefs are. Yeah. I just ask for your opinion. I've taken my own conflict of interest out of it. Is that O? That is the D. That's D. Okay, D. Because. Disinterestedness is that you don't want to have a conflict of interest. Yes. You want to be disinterested. Got it. And then the OS in kudos is objective skepticism, mm. which means that you approach the world asking, why am I wrong? Yes. Rather than why am I right? Yes. And that's actually incredibly deep and incredibly important. It's pop- poplarian. Yes, exactly. Yeah, scientists is all about disproving things. People don't get that. They think it's about right. proving Right, so things. I always want to know, like, when I'm talking to people and I give them you know, I, I say, well, here's my hypothesis. I say, why? But why am I wrong? That's what yeah. I want to know. Yeah. Because I already know why I'm right. I know why I came to. I, the I'm amazed that people that don't use the null hypothesis anymore. They don't seem to use it. I understand they the, don't. There are things with it, but I, I was trained on that. That's that's where I start. Like, why am I? You know, let's assume I'm wrong, <laughs> and then try. Right. To how would I prove that I'm wrong? Yeah. yeah. Yes. Exactly. So you can think about how you can bring these into just your everyday life. Right? I mean, I've already, we've talked about this. Like, ask people a lot, why do you think I'm wrong? Tell, tell me where I'm going wrong here. What am I not seeing? Yeah. You can not tell people your beliefs. You cannot tell people how things turned out. That takes the conflict of interest away. When you're asking about something that you read, don't tell them the source. Yeah. That takes the universalism piece and instantiates it. When you're offering up the details that somebody needs of a decision process, make sure that you're offering up the things that make you uncomfortable. Make sure that you're offering up the things that you feel like might argue for the other side. Those are the most important details to offer. And Annie, is this all in the book, Thinking in Bets? This is all in the book. All right. So get the book. It's on Amazon. It's everywhere. I'll have it up on my website, Thinking in Bets. And if you need to revisit, listen to the podcast again and read along. And what is it, just in the last remaining minutes, other things in the book that we want to look for, highlight? Um, yeah, I think so. I mean, there's... There's um, an issue about motivated reasoning, which mm-hmm. I think is a concept that people really should look at, which is this unawareness that we have that we're very often reasoning toward a conclusion that we already want to get to. Yep. And then the last thing I would say is on this uncertainty piece, um, one of the things that actually allows you to bubble up um, the uncertainty to the surface in a really good way is if you actually ask yourself, would I be willing to bet on this? Ah. And I really encourage people to try this. like. Here's a good example that I've done with people. So people are talking about the midterms, and they'll say, I think the Democrats are going to take the House. 
And if you say to them, oh, do you want to bet on that? You can watch the uncertainty start to come up. <laughs> Right? When yeah. they're like, oh, well, wait, it's really far away. I'm not sure. Wait, let me go look at the polls to see how the Democrats are polling. Just a second. And when, once we start to bring the uncertainty into the system, we all become better decision makers because it's just a more accurate representation of the world. Um, and it's a more accurate representation of the truth is that things aren't black and white. They're not 100%, 0%. And you can even do this with your kids. I've had friends who've started using this and their kid will say, I don't want to go to that movie. I'm going to hate it. And the parent will say, well, do you want to bet on that? Uh, and all of a sudden, good. the kid becomes more open-minded. Interesting. I like that. I, yeah. It also drives me crazy you know, when you know, people describe biological systems as always a, a, a narrative. They're telling a story mm-hmm. about this. Biology is all a bunch of probabilities. It's all it is. Exactly. And, and it's way more complex than a narrative. Like, things do, A does not go to B that goes to C. That is not biology. Biology is more about the soup and where all kinds of collisions are happening and maybe there's a probability or one thing kind of emerges and that's it. So Yeah, uh, I actually, you know, I cite a study in the book, um, which I think is kind of fun, where they looked at um, scientists had to peer review articles, so they just read them and then gave their opinion on whether they thought the articles would replicate. And then they they had those same scientists have to bet on them in a prediction market. Interesting. And they were a little over 50% on whether the studies would replicate when they were peer reviewing. But once you put them in the prediction market, they were all of a sudden closer to 80%. That they could replicate. So in their accuracy. Oh, I see. I see. So they they had to say, will this replicate or not? And they were looking to see how accurate they were. They were a little over 50% if they were just reviewing it. But once you had them bet on it, they all of a sudden got closer to 80% in their predictions uh, because they, you gave them some skin in the game. You made them skin think the about game. how certain they were. Skin in the game. That's a very yeah. important – well, listen, I, I could do another hour. Uh, we should do an hour on game theory sometime yeah, specifically. Yeah, I would love that. Yeah. That's obviously one of my favorite topics. Yeah, and that's a, that gets very heady very fast. But if you don't mind, I'm going to bug you to do that with me someday. I, I'll be happy to. All right, excellent. And uh, for now, I'm going to have to let you go. We're going to get the book, Thinking in Bets. And Do you have another, any more books coming out or anything? Any place else you want to send people? Well, yeah, so I actually have a weekly newsletter, um, which actually looks at items in the news and applies this kind of thinking to it so people can see. Like when you ask me, well, how would this apply in your life, my newsletter is going to do that for you every single week. I usually have four or five items in there that are thinking about, like, as it applies to self-driving cars, for example. I've done a lot of stuff on that or in sports or politics. Is that at com. At com, you can find the newsletter there. And then the other thing that I would love if people would check out is the um, nonprofit that I founded called How I Decide. And what we do is we create programs um, in critical thinking and decision skills for underserved youth. And we're also a field builder and catalyzer in that field. So connecting people from different sectors, trying to create energy in this domain uh, to get people talking to each other, and we also act as an accelerator for other people doing amazing work in decisions. Is that also at anydoot.com? So they, you can find that at anydoot.com, or they can go to howidecide.org. Got it. Annie, thank you so much. This was really a pleasure for me, and uh, kind of a thrill. I really enjoyed this, and we'll do more, okay? <laughs> thank you. Well, I'd love to come back on and, and continue the discussion. Done and done. We'll get headier. Thanks, Annie. All right, awesome. All right. Thank you. And we'll see you all next time. For calling times and topics, follow the show on Twitter at Dr. Drew Podcast. That's D-R-D-R-E-W Podcast. The music from today's episode can be found on the swinging sounds of the Dr. Drew Podcast, now available on iTunes. And while you're there, don't forget to rate the show. The Dr. Drew Podcast is a Corolla Digital production and is produced by Chris Loxamana and Gary Smith. For more information, go to drdrew.com. All conversation and information exchanged during the participation in the Dr. Drew Podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes. Only. Do not confuse this with treatment or medical advice or direction. Nothing on these podcasts supplement or supersede the relationship and direction of your medical caretakers. Although Dr. Drew is a licensed physician with specialty board certifications by the American Board of Internal Medicine and the American Board of Addiction Medicine, he is not functioning as a physician in this environment. The same applies to any professionals who may appear on the podcast or drdrew.com. 